The following sermon is presented by Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. As I said, this is our baptism service. This is our annual opportunity to hear testimonies of those who have come to Christ and want to publicly profess Jesus Christ in the waters of baptism. And we are privileged today to have this service. This is one of my favorite Sundays of the year. And we get to hear the testimonies of those who have been transformed by Christ. We have just two today. We're very excited for these young men to publicly profess their faith in just a few moments. Before we do that, though, I would like to take some time to open God's Word with you to discuss the issue of baptism. And I want to do that because this has become such a confusing topic. We all agree that baptism involves someone getting wet. Beyond that, there's not a lot of agreement. There's a lot of confusion surrounding this issue. There's confusion about who should be baptized. There's confusion about when someone should be baptized. There's confusion about how someone should be baptized. And it illustrates the fact that this is a confusing issue. It is one that is surrounded by a lot of controversy, and there's a lot of people just plainly confused about the issue of baptism, about its method, and about its meaning, and so I want to take some time this morning to address this issue, because there is a paradox and an irony within the church. It is this, that in the church today, we have this strange mixture of baptized non-Christians and unbaptized Christians. Think about it. The true church ought to be the church of the redeemed, the believers in Christ who have publicly testified of their salvation in the waters of baptism. And yet, in many cases, that's not the case. Today, there's a church filled with people who have been baptized and yet don't know Christ and those who do know Christ that have never been baptized. It's a very strange irony within the church today. And I believe that one of the greatest reasons for this confusion is the practice of infant baptism. And I want to just kind of lay out where we're going this morning. I, I believe that this issue has led to much of the controversy that, that we are experiencing in the church today surrounding the issue of baptism. If you've been with us for the past 10 years, you know that on Baptism Sunday, we typically open the Word and we look at a passage of Scripture related to someone who's been baptized. We, we've gone through Acts chapter 2. We've looked at the baptism of those who were saved that day of Pentecost, the 3,000 people who came to Christ. We've looked at Acts chapter 8 and the conversion of the Ethiopian official. We've looked at Acts chapter 16 and the conversion of Lydia and the conversion of the Philippian jailer and their subsequent baptisms. We've studied Colossians chapter 2 and Romans chapter 6 on the spiritual implications of baptism. Do you remember all that? That's where we've been for the last 10 years. What I want to do, though, on this particular Sunday is I want to come at the issue from the opposite angle. And I want to address the issue of the issue of infant baptism, more of a topical sermon this morning. And I want to address this issue for a couple of reasons. One, I believe, as I said, that this issue has really muddied the waters of salvation and who's truly saved and who belongs in the church in terms of a member of the church. And I believe that this issue has brought about a lot of controversy and confusion within the church. And just so you know that I'm not picking on anybody or trying to be antagonistic, this is my testimony. I've shared my testimony with you before. I was raised in a church in West Michigan. I spent 18 years in the Reformed Church of America church. I was sprinkled as an infant. 
I was told as I was growing up that that sprinkling, that infant baptism is what brought me into the church. It's what made me a member of the church, that the faith of my parents was passed on to me and that was secured for me through infant baptism. I was taught by the church to make a public profession of my faith later on at some point, which I did at age 15. I remember standing in front of the church saying, I'm a Christian I believe in Jesus, and I'm a member of this church. And so I, I, I went through all of these steps. I don't really remember the first step, but I was there. And then I went through the steps necessary in the Reformed Church to be a member of that church. Let me read for you a, a description of this process that was given to me in the membership handbook of this church when I was about 16 years old. It says, quote, We also practice baptism for children, We do so because we believe that to both believers and their children has been given the promise of the grace of God. Although children may experience that fellowship in a different manner, the grace is yet effective in their lives. Thus, listen, by means of the sacrament of baptism, they are admitted into the fellowship of the church as members. They receive such membership on the strength of their parents' faith. Since the grace of God that flows not only to father and mother, but to the children in the family as well. Then it says this, why should young people baptize into the church, then later join the church when they reach some age of maturity? It says they don't. What they do by their confession of faith is to affirm for themselves what their parents had affirmed for them long, long ago. Their act of witness indicates that they plan to continue the membership their parents gained for them at the outset. It's not too different from being given a cross-country trip on a Greyhound bus. Maybe you won it in some special drawing. You start to the bus ride and you stay on it as long as you feel that you enjoy it and it's worthwhile. But you have the right to step off the bus or stop your participation at any point along the way. That's your decision. So confession of faith is the decision to stay on the bus. End quote. Now understand what it's saying. What they're saying is when you're born into the Reformed Church or into the covenant community, the faith of your parents becomes your faith. And then at some point later in your life, when you express your own faith, you're affirming what you've already been affirmed for by your parents. So your membership in the church was secured not at your conversion, but at your infant baptism, which is an expression of your parental faith passed on to you. So for 18 years, I grew up thinking I was a Christian. I did what was taught to me in the church, and then God graciously took me away, brought me to college in Colorado, and there began to study the word through the fellowship of Christian athletes and other godly people in my life, and I came to the conclusion I was not saved. I was a baptized unbeliever. And God began to do a work in my heart at that point and made me realize I was a make-believer. And I look back and it took me a while to sort this out and it took me a while to kind of process what was that that I was taught when I was in that church and then what happened when I came to Christ truly and was I really technically ever baptized and I came to the conclusion that I wasn't because of the testimony of scripture and so God did a work in my heart and drawing me to himself and then convicted me of my need to be baptized according to God's word and so this is all an illustration of how I believe infant baptism muddies the waters Perhaps that's not your experience, that was my experience, but I think it illustrates the confusion. There's a second reason I want to preach on this topic, it's because you live in West Michigan. And you need to know about this. You live in Dutch capital of the world, whether you like it or not. 
In the last count, there are over 600 churches in Grand Rapids, many of them Reformed churches, Christian Reformed churches, Presbyterian churches, and you need to know how to respond to this issue. Now, let me say very clearly, I'm not anti-Reformed. In fact, if you come to Maranatha Bible Church, you are Reformed. I am Reformed. You need to know that. In many ways, we are reformed in that we believe in the doctrines of grace, the sovereignty of God and salvation. We believe in the work of God and the heart of a person to draw him, them to himself. We are reformed in our soteriology. We believe in the work of God and the heart of a sinner to draw them to himself and save him. We believe in the doctrines of grace. We believe in the five solas of the Reformation. We believe in the authority of the, God, the word of God and the glory of God is the aim of all things. We believe in those things and if you believe those things, you're reformed. So we're reformed. I'm not anti-reformed. But when it comes to some areas, we're not reformed. We are not reformed in our understanding of the church and end times. You need to understand this. We are not reformed in our understanding of the distinction between Israel and the church. There's a distinction. We, We don't believe that the church has replaced Israel. So that area, we don't agree with reformed theology. We also don't agree in the areas of end times. We are not millennial in our understanding of the end times. We don't believe in historic premillennialism. We are dispensational. We believe in futuristic premillennialism. And so in this area, we are not reformed. We're also not reformed in our understanding of baptism. So I want you to understand very clearly that I'm not anti-reformed. And yet there's a number of areas where we're going to come down in a different place. And one of those areas is baptism. And so I want you to understand very clearly what God's word says about this issue. Now, a couple comments before we jump into this. First, I don't want to be unnecessarily offensive to you. Some of you here today have been baptized by, uh, as an infant in the church that you were raised in. Some of you have been Uh, sprinkled. I don't want to be offensive to you in any way. I I don't in any way want to malign you or your parents. I know this is a sensitive subject, and I don't want to in any way unnecessarily offend you. I also want to make it clear that I want to deal specifically this morning with the Reformed view of infant baptism, not the Catholic view. They are same practice, but for very different reasons. And I'm not going to address the Catholic side. I want to address the Reformed side today. And I want you to understand the Reformed Church's teachings on the issue of infant baptism and how to respond to those. So that's the first reason. I, I, I don't want to unnecessarily offend you. I want to be very sensitive to that, but I want you to understand what the Word says. Second, I need to say at the beginning that I have a great respect for many Reformed pastors. Many godly men who are preaching the word of God in the pulpits in Reformed churches and Presbyterian churches. I have a great respect for many of them. Godly men preaching the gospel. We can say that we are together for the gospel in a number of these things. And so I want you to be very clear about that. I have no desire to be antagonistic or contemptuous toward anyone who is in the Reformed camp. There are different flavors of it. There are different expressions of it. Some are stronger than others, but I do not want in any way to come across as antagonistic or contemptuous. I have a great regard for a number of those men who are faithfully preaching the word. However, having said that, I want you to understand very clearly what the word says on this issue. Let me give you the two camps, and then we'll look at some reasons why we would reject infant baptism. There are two camps on this issue. One is the paedo-baptist camp, it is the baby baptizing camp. It is the, those who believe that infant children of believers should be baptized. And the primary argument for this is that there's a continuity between how God worked in the Old Testament with the nation of Israel into the New Testament and how he works today in the church. 
And they see a continuity or an identity between Old Testament circumcision and New Testament baptism. And they say the Old Testament circumcision was a sign of the covenant. And in the same way, in the New Testament, baptism is a sign of the new covenant. So they see a continuity or a correlation between those two supposed signs of the covenant. That's the basis of the argument. If you understand anything about infant baptism, you've got to get that. They see a continuity between these two covenants and these two testaments, one in the Old Testament circumcision, one in the New Testament infant baptism. We'll talk about that in a minute. The other side of this camp are those who hold the believer's baptism, which is our position here at Maranatha, that we believe baptism is for believers. It is for those who have come to faith in Christ, that want to publicly testify of that faith, that want to give a public symbol and demonstration of that in obedience to the command by Jesus Christ to be baptized And that is this position known as believer's baptism. It's not for infants. It's not a pre-conversion event. It is a post-conversion event for those who have been saved and expressed faith and repentance in the Lord Jesus Christ. So these are the two sides. Which one's right? How How do we resolve this controversy? Well... We could appeal somewhat to church tradition and look there. We could also appeal somewhat to church history. But, of course, we want the Word of God and the Word of God alone to be our authority on this issue. And so what we want to do this morning is I want to look through the Word of God and give you some reasons why I believe it's important for us to reject infant baptism. So let me give you five reasons this morning. Five reasons why I believe biblically it is necessary for us to reject infant baptism. Number one, it is not commanded anywhere in the Bible. The first reason why I believe it's necessary for us to reject this is because it's not commanded anywhere in the Bible. Now, our desire as believers is always to do what God commands. If he commands it, we want to do it. If he instructs us, we want to obey it. We want to be obedient believers. And so if there is a command, specifically in the scriptures, to baptize infants, that we want to be obedient to. So the question is, are there any? Certainly a command to be baptized. Matthew chapter 28 says, Go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Certainly there is a command to practice baptism, but is there a command to practice infant baptism as we see it practiced today? And I would submit to you that the answer is a resounding no. There's no commands anywhere. Nowhere in Scripture are believers directly commanded or even implicitly commanded to baptize by immersion or by sprinkling, rather, their infant newborn children. There are many paedobaptists who would admit this readily. Jeffrey Bromley, who is a paedobaptist, says that parents are not disobeying any clear command if they withhold baptism from their children. He acknowledges that there's no clear cut command. And a man named Fred Malone, a former paedobaptist, he says this. He says, one problem with infant baptism, which has often bothered me as a Presbyterian pastor, is that it is not sufficiently clear in the scriptures for ordinary Christian parents to determine their duty of infant baptism without help from pastors and complicated theological studies. Many have expressed to me, if it's a command to obey, why is it not more clear in scripture? So the question is, is there a clear command? And even some of the Paedobaptists admit that that's not clearly commanded within the scriptures. Let me show you a few. Let's look at these together. Matthew chapter 18. Let's just do a little Bible study together for a few moments this morning. Matthew chapter 18. Verse 2. Matthew 18 verse 2. 
says he, Jesus called the child to himself and stood him in their midst. He said, truly I say to you, unless you're converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as a child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So those who practice infant baptism will look at this verse and they say, there's something here about children and there's something here about a promise of the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, there must be a link here. And what is used here is this passage by Paedobaptists to say, here's a clear example of where children are to be baptized. And when they do, they come to be a part of the kingdom of heaven. The problem with that is this passage is not about baptism. It's about believers. It's about Christians. It's how to become a believer. His point here is not at all about baptism. There's no water here. There's no, there's no baptism taking place here. This is a passage entirely devoted to talking about how someone becomes a Christian. And Jesus' point here is you got to come to Christ or come to faith like a child does. How does a child do it? They have faith. They're trusting. They're dependent. They don't accomplish things and you accept them because of that. They don't achieve things and you accept them because of that. Children are by nature helpless and needy and dependent. And his point is that's how you come to Christ. That's how you come to faith. So he's merely talking here about how someone becomes to be a part of the kingdom of God. He's simply saying that if you want to become a part of the kingdom of God, of heaven, if you want to become a follower of me, then you need to have a faith that is like a childlike faith. It's needy. It's dependent. It's trusting God. We don't come accomplishing things. We don't come in our own achievements. We don't come with our own pedigree of accomplishments and say, God, you need to accept me. We simply come in faith. And say, Lord, accept me because I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. That's all Jesus is saying here. This is not a text on baptism. It's a text on how someone becomes a believer. Turn over to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. Verse 13. A similar passage to this. It says, and they were bringing children to him, verse 13, Mark 10, 13. They were bringing children to him so that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, permit the children to come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God believes to, belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And he took them in his arms and began blessing them, laying his hands on them. Very similar argument here by Pado Baptist. They will look at this text and they will say, Jesus here is receiving the children of believers. And he says that to them belongs the kingdom of God. And so here's clear evidence in their mind that infant baptism is to be a part of the practice of the church because it's a sign of the covenant that should be given to them. If Jesus is welcoming them, then therefore it must be extended to them as a sign of God's promise to them. That's the argument. But here's some problems with that. Number one, Jesus didn't baptize them. Again, there's no water here. This is a dry event. There's no water at all in this scene. Jesus is not baptizing them in any way. So there's no evidence that there's anything here related to baptism itself. That's one reason we question that. Secondly, the assumption that these children are being brought, are children of unbelievers, are children of believers has no grounds. They're arguing that there are children here being brought by believing parents. And that because of their believing parents, that these children are included in the kingdom of God. But nowhere do we see here that these are believers who are bringing their children to Christ. 
In fact, most of the multitudes who followed Christ were unbelievers. So it's very possible that these children coming to Christ are not children of believers, but children of pagans, of unbelieving Gentiles. So to say that these are children of believers has no grounds in the text. Thirdly, there's another reason why we should reject that. It's because in verse 14, it doesn't say that the kingdom of heaven belongs to these children. It says the kingdom of heaven belongs to children like these. You see the distinction? Look at verse 14. He says the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. It doesn't say to these. It says to such as these. So his point is not saying these children belong to the covenant community and therefore should be given the process or the sign of infant baptism. He's just saying, like he did in Matthew chapter 18, that the way you come to be a part of the kingdom of God is you have faith like these children. That's his point. Humble, dependent, trusting, needy. So there's nothing in this text that would indicate this is a text promoting infant baptism. So third text I want you to see. It's in Acts chapter 2. Go over a few more books to the right. Acts chapter 2. This is one of the primary passages that Pado Baptists will go to to defend this doctrine. Acts chapter 2. You remember that this is the sermon on Pentecost when Peter is preaching. Christ has ascended back into heaven. Peter stands up on Pentecost and he begins to preach the gospel and proclaim Christ. And 3,000 people come to faith in Christ that day. They hear the gospel, they hear about Christ, and they're cut to the heart, and they say, what should we do? Verse 37, in light of this great gospel, in light of this glorious proclamation of Christ, what should we do? Verse 38, Peter said to them, repent, and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For, here it is, the promise is for you and your children. And for all who are far off, as many as the Lord of God, our God, shall call to himself. So here's the argument. The argument is, Peter's preaching. He's saying children here are embraced by the covenant and they must be entitled to receive the sign of the covenant. And they see the statement in verse 39 as your children as an allusion to baptism of children. The question is, is that what he's saying? And I would submit to you that that's not Peter's point his point is this listen very carefully he's saying to these people on the day of pentecost if you want to have the blessings and the promises that god is giving you then the way you receive those is by repentance and faith that's what verse 38 says you repent and receive the forgiveness of your sins and in demonstration of that reality you're baptized in the name of jesus christ That's the pattern. Belief, baptism. Belief, baptism. And if you teach your children that same truth, they can receive salvation. That's all he's saying. He's saying the same promise of forgiveness, the same promise of the gospel, the same promise of repentance will bring you to faith in Christ and you will have all the blessings that he has just spoken about. That goes true for your children as well. If they repent and if they have faith in Christ, they too can receive these blessings and their children and their children and their children. It goes on and on and on, not by way of covenant promises, but by way of God's promise that all who place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ will be saved. That's all he's saying. There's nothing here about babies. Nothing about infant baptism. One more passage I want you to see. Go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians 
chapter 7, verse 12. You'll know this passage to be about marriage and divorce. And Paul says here in chapter 7, verse 12, he says, To the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Pato-Baptists will look at this verse and they will say that the phrase in verse 14, that this is for your children and they are made unclean otherwise, is a statement of the covenant. And they would look at that and they would say that children of at least one believing parent are covenantally holy. And therefore, the sign of the covenant should be given to them as it was given in the Old Testament through circumcision. It should be given today in the form of infant baptism question we have to ask is that the point of the passage i would submit to you it's not it's not because look what paul is saying his point here is that if you're married to an unbeliever you should stay married if the unbelieving spouse is willing to live with you because there's blessings that flow from god to the believing spouse and spill over to you if you're the unbelieving spouse that's what he says verse 12 look what he says the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever and she consents to live with them, let him not send her away. If you're a a man and you're married to a woman who's not a believer and she's willing to stay married to you, then stay married. Verse 13, same thing is the case for a woman. If a woman has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, let her not send her husband away. If you're a woman who's a believer and your husband's not and he's willing to stay married to you, you should stay married. You shouldn't divorce. Why? Verse 14, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. What's he saying? He's saying that God's grace flows from you to the believing spouse and the unbelieving spouse gets to reap some of the benefits and blessings and joys of the blessings that flow in that relationship. Think about it. If you're a believing spouse in the unbelieving marriage, marriage to an unbeliever, your spouse gets some of the blessings of God in your life. You're kinder. You're more gracious. You're more patient. Same thing is true for children. They get the spillover of God's blessing of the believing spouse also. That's his point here in verse 14 when he says, Otherwise your children are unclean, but now they're holy. If you get divorced and the believing spouse's children are separated from them, they are removed in a sense from the blessings of God flowing through the believing spouse. So his point is stay married because your children get the blessings of being in a family with at least one believing parent. That's what he's talking about here. He's not talking about infant baptism. This is not a defense of the covenant and how children are welcomed into the covenant on the basis of their parents' faith and it should be given a sign of the covenant. That's not what he's talking about. So, question number one is, are there any commands in the scripture to practice infant baptism? I would say, no, there's not. There's no commands and even the texts that are used to support this doctrine when studied in their proper context don't actually deal with infant baptism. They deal with something entirely different. Number two, there's a second reason why I believe it's necessary for us to reject infant baptism. It's because it's not modeled in the Bible. It's not modeled in the Bible. Perhaps you might be able to say, well, 
it's not commanded, but maybe we can see it exemplified or modeled, and we can see that it's part of the practice of the early church, and so perhaps we can find some evidence of it in the early church, and if that's the case, we could practice it because it's modeled for us. So the question is, are there any evidences or examples of infant baptism in the New Testament? And I would say there are none. None. Those who practice paedo-baptism will go to the household baptism sections of Scripture to show that there were examples. And according to this argument, when the head of the family, the father in most cases, or in some cases the mother, are believing, are expressing faith, then they believe that the, the belief and the baptism that flows from that then goes to the children and the infants as well. So the question is, are there infants in the household baptism sections of Scripture that would give us an example of this being practiced in the early church. Well, let's look at some. Very quickly, Acts chapter 10. We're going to do another quick Bible study. I promise this will be quick. Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. One of the, there's five, by the way. There's five household baptism, baptism sections of the scriptures. And perhaps that may sound like a compelling argument if we could prove that there's infants there. So the question is, are there infants in these five household baptism sections of scripture? Let's look at the first one, Acts chapter 10. We don't have time to look at the whole chapter because it's about Cornelius and how he came to faith in Christ. Verse 44 says, when Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message Verse 45 says that all the circumcised believers who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out upon the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues. So what you have here is people coming to faith in Christ. They begin speaking in tongues to give evidence of the fact that they have been converted. Verse 47, surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. Can he? So the implication here is that there are infants present and everyone who's a part of this Cornelius household was baptized in accordance with the practice of baptism. The question is, are there children? It doesn't say there are. It doesn't say anything about children being present. It doesn't say anything about infants being present. In fact, look at verse 24. It says, on the following day, he entered Caesarea. Now, Cornelius was waiting for them, and he called together his relatives and his close friends. That's who's there. It's his relatives and his close friends who are there who are hearing Peter preach the gospel. There's no mention in this text anywhere of infants or young children. So we can only surmise that this is an example of believer's baptism, not one of infant baptism. Go over to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. The household of Lydia. The household of Lydia. Look at verse 14. It says, A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household, there it is, had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay, and she prevailed upon us. So here's a woman by the name of Lydia who comes to faith in Christ after Paul preaches the gospel to her. Her heart is open, and it says she and her household were baptized. And those who hold to infant baptism will say there, there must be infants present there. There's a household. So the implication is there must be children, there must be infants, and they were baptized too. But the question we have to ask is, is that what it says? It doesn't say that. Furthermore, only Lydia is mentioned. Her husband's not mentioned. She perhaps was an unmarried woman. If she's unmarried, then perhaps she had no children. So to read children into this text is to do exactly that, to read it in. I believe this is another example of 
believer's baptism. She and those who were there with her expressed their faith in Christ and were saved and baptized. What about the Philippian jailer? The very next part of Acts chapter 16, look down at verse 31. You remember the story that Paul and Silas were in jail. They, they were singing and rejoicing and suddenly a, an earthquake shakes the foundations of the prison. The doors fling open and the Philippian jailer is scared because he knows that if they escape, he will be put to death. And so he says in verse 31, believe on the Lord. Actually, he said in verse 30, what must I do to be saved? Verse 31, they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. So they preached the gospel. And what happened? Look at verse 33. And he took them that very hour and night and washed their wounds. Immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. At this point, Pado Baptists will assume that this is a statement of infant baptism, that children were present and were thus baptized. But look at verse 34. It says, He brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. Very clear. They believed, they were baptized, the whole household believed. So you have a very clear statement here that in the text, this is a believing group of people servants, friends, family, but not infants. Two more, very quickly. Acts chapter 18, verse 8. Acts 18, verse 8. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. Again, the assumption is there must be infants here, there must be children here. So they must have been present and were likewise baptized. But again, I would say to you, what does the text say? The text says they were believing and were being baptized. Infants can't believe. Okay? One more. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 16. Actually, I want you to go to chapter 1 and chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians. It's a very helpful passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 16. He says that, Now I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. He says, I baptized the household of Stephanus. And so the implication by Paedobaptists is that there must have been infants present there in this household. Were there? We'll go over to chapter 16 and verse 15. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 15. Paul further describes the household of Stephanus in verse 15. He says, Now I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that they were the first fruits of Achaia, and that they've devoted themselves for ministry to the saints. Now get what he's saying here. Those of the household of Stephanus were those who were first fruits, meaning they were converts, and they devoted themselves for the ministry of the saints. Can infants do that? Can infants devote themselves to the ministry of the saints. No. These are adults. These are people old enough to understand their need for a savior. They're old enough to understand the gospel. They believe and they were saved and they were baptized. This is the pattern that we see in the scriptures. So are there models, are there examples of places in scripture where infants are being baptized? There aren't any. 
In fact, every example that we see is baptism of adults who believed in Christ and then subsequently were baptized. The 3,000 at Pentecost were believing and were baptized. The men and women of Samaria in Acts chapter 8 believed and were baptized. The Ethiopian official in Acts chapter 8 believed and was baptized. Cornelius and his friends were baptized after their faith. The disciples of John in Acts chapter 19 believed and were baptized. You see this pattern. This is the pattern. This is the clear testimony of Scripture. So, not only is there no command, there's also no example. Number three, another reason why I think it's important for us to reject infant baptism is because it's not a replacement for circumcision. It's not a replacement for circumcision. This gets to the heart of the issue. This gets to the heart of the the argument for infant baptism. Now, let me just briefly explain it. We'll move on. We'll finish up here in a moment. If you believe in infant baptism, you have to believe that there is a relationship between the Old Testament sign of the covenant of circumcision and the New Testament sign of infant baptism, supposedly. They would say that infant baptism signifies the regeneration of the soul. They they would say that it's a sign of the, the covenant and this regeneration. Maybe it doesn't happen right at the moment of your infant baptism, but it promises it or it secures it or in some way enables you at some point later in life to receive regeneration and to have faith. That's what the belief is within the Reformed Church. And it's inextricably tied to the Abrahamic covenant. So the logic behind this is in the Old Testament, circumcision was a sign of the Abrahamic covenant as a sign of the covenant community, and in the New Testament, that sign has been replaced by infant baptism. There's a lot we could say about this, but we have to say this. Was circumcision a sign of salvation? No. Circumcision was merely an outward identification of the fact that they were part of a covenant people, God's people, Israel, the nation of Israel. Circumcision had no spiritual impact on the life of any Israelite. None. In fact, most of the Israelites under the Abrahamic covenant and subsequent generations did not know God. Right? Romans chapter 9 verse 6 says, Not all Israel is Israel. Not everyone who's in the the covenant community of Israel is true Israel. Not everyone who's an Israelite is saved. Not everyone who's in Israel knows God. In fact, most of them didn't. Most of them were a rebellious, apostate, idolatrous group of people who didn't follow the Lord wholeheartedly. So circumcision was never meant to save anybody and it was never meant to be a a sign of salvation. It was never meant to be a spiritual sign of anything. It was simply an outward identification of the fact that you were part of a covenant community, God's people. And yet, today those who believe in baby baptism believe that that sign has been replaced by infant baptism and that infant baptism though it doesn't necessarily save you at that moment will actually lead you someday to salvation it's called presumptive regeneration it's presumed that you will be regenerated if you are baptized as an infant that's presumptive regeneration the problem is the sign of the old covenant was never meant to be a sign of spiritual life you understand that? And so we have to 
be very cautious and very careful that we make it very clear distinction. The circumcision sign was never meant to save anybody or be a sign of any spiritual life. Likewise, infant baptism cannot do the same either. Number four, very quickly, it misses the significance of biblical baptism. Infant baptism, I believe, misses the significance of biblical baptism. What is biblical baptism? We've just seen it. We've just looked at a number of passages that say when someone is a believing in Christ, they are then baptized to give a visual demonstration of the fact that they've been saved. This is the, the, the privilege and the joy of believers' baptize, baptism. The word itself literally means to immerse or to submerge or to drown. We won't do that, guys. Promise. We won't drown your sons today. But that's what the word means. It means to literally go under the water, to be immersed, to be put under the water. And every baptism that we see in Scripture is that way. In fact, every time you read of a baptism, it almost always says they went down into the water and they came up out of the water. Matthew chapter 3, verse 16, Jesus came up immediately from the water. Mark 1, 5, he baptized him in the Jordan River. John 3, John was baptizing because there was much water there. And my favorite, Acts chapter 8, the Ethiopian, after he's converted, says, hey, stop the chariot. Look, there's water. And it says, he ordered the chariot to stop and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. Listen, the mode's important. The mode is important. The mode's important because it's a symbol. It's a symbol of a reality. When someone comes to faith in Christ, that old person dies and a new person comes to life in Christ. That's what baptism pictures. It pictures the going away of your old life and a coming up of the new life. So when a person goes under the water, it's a symbol of the going away of their sin. And when they come up out of the water, it's a symbol of their new life in Christ. Only believer's baptism symbolizes that reality. So what is infant baptism? Listen, I think we should not call it that. It's not baptism. What happens when someone is sprinkled as an infant? Ready for this? Write this down. Nothing. They get a wet head. That's it. That's all that happens. There is no conferring of grace. There is no presumptive regeneration that begins the heart of that child. There's nothing happens. So we can't call it baptism. You say, well, it's kind of an infant dedication. Fine. I'm all on board with dedicating your child or dedicating yourself. We do that here at Maranatha. We believe in parent dedication. We believe in child dedication. It's important to do that. Just don't call it baptism. It's not. Last, number five. The fifth reason why it's important, I think, for us to reject this is it confuses the true church. Confuses the true church. What is the church? The church is not a building you go to to check off your religious box every week. The church is a group of redeemed believers in Jesus Christ. That's the visible, the invisible church, the true church, the true church. And I'm not talking about our denomination. I'm not talking about certain what I'm just saying that the true church of God is the people who have been redeemed by Christ, brought into the family of believers through Christ, sealed by the spirit and are part of a organism, a body that is now functioning together to serve one another and learn and grow and mature and become more like Christ. 
That's the invisible church. But when you baptize or sprinkle infants, you bring into the invisible church unbelievers. And it confuses the true church. This was my testimony. I was considered a member of that church that I was sprinkled in. I was not a believer. It confuses the true church. To be in the church, though, you put your your faith in Christ. And the problem is when we begin sprinkling infants and saying you're now part of the church, you've got baptized unbelievers comprising the visible church, which is a contradiction of God's design for the true church. So, we could say a whole lot more, which is what a pastor says when he runs out of material. We could say a whole lot more, but I want you to understand the scriptures are clear about this. Okay, It's not a confusing issue. It's not ambiguous. It's not hard to understand. And it's why we joyfully practice believers' baptism here at Maranatha with great joy, with great thrill in our hearts to publicly hear the testimonies of those who have done exactly that. They've repented of their sins. They've placed their trust in Jesus Christ. And they want to publicly profess that to you and others in the waters of baptism. And so we do that together today with great joy in our hearts. I hope this is helpful. I hope it's helpful for you at least to have a a polemic or a defense, some reasons why perhaps God's word states very clearly the proper practice of baptism. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that your word is clear on this issue. Lord, we want to be very gracious. We don't want to go around throwing arguments. We don't want to in any way be unkind about this. Lord, if if we do engage in conversations with others, let, let us be gracious, very patient, very kind, very compassionate. But Lord, help us also to be very clear what your word says. We thank you for Dan Stenquist and Jesse Koning who will in just a moment come and declare their testimony of faith in Christ. Lord, encourage them, strengthen them to do so as we sing this final song. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon presented at Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.